Thanks for being with us. You can go ahead and grab a seat. It is so good to be with you this morning on this beautiful, beautiful spring day. I'm just saying this. You, you shouldn't have to dethaw your car in spring, right? But I just think God knows us in the Rochester area. We just got a little extra than everybody else. I'm going to go with that, all right? So amen, amen? Amen. Oh, come on, amen? amen. All right, all right. I just make sure you're ready. You ready? I'm ready. Well, hey, welcome home. It is great to have each and every one of you here, whether you're joining us on our digital campus or our physical campus, we are honored and excited that you are here and welcome home. We do, we desire that this place feels like home to you. And so welcome to the family. Thank you for being here. And you know, I'm a parent. Many of you are our parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, nieces and nephews, cousins and babysitters, and we all at some place in our life have to, you know, interact with kids, influence kids, and when you think about parenting and loving kids, there's really, in, in my house at least, two major difficult things with kids. I think the first one is the obvious, it's the priority of every parent, every family who is trying to shape their kids, it's to teach them to just obey, right? To do what you say, to live in obedience, to make wise choices, to raise good, mature, godly adults. But on the more practical side, one thing that's really hard in our household, and I don't think I'm alone in, in this, is just to get our kids to go to bed. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but around 7.30, 8 o'clock, there's just this force that, fills my kids with all kinds of energy. And the moment I mention bed, it's like all, like it goes crazy in our kids' lives. They're just like, let's wrestle, let's do all these things. I'm like, no, we're, we're going to put our PJs on. And it's always been interesting to me because every kid's worst punishment is every parent's dream. <laughs> you know, like, okay, you gotta take a nap. A kid's like, that's terrible, please tell me to take a nap. Right? Or like, hey, go sit in silence by yourself. That sounds amazing to me, but my kids hate it. Go to bed. Yes, please, I will go to bed. But around 7.30, 8 o'clock, we, we try to rally our kids, brush their teeth, put their PJs on, and it's kind of like a grueling experience to get them to go to sleep. Now, I have to give credit where credit's due. Malachi is my man. Okay, Malachi, he's usually in his third REM cycle before the girls actually get to their bed. And so with the girls, it's like, okay, we, we get them in their PJs, we brush their teeth, we read 18 Bible stories, we've prayed for all the prayers in all of humanity, we've answered every deep question that somehow comes up only at bedtime, and they're starting to settle. They're starting to yawn, they're starting to realize they're tired. So they get into their beds, I love you, and as I, I'm rounding the corner outside of their room, I'm thinking, oh, this is gonna be sweet. Now Ashley and I, we get a little time before we go to bed, it's gonna be sweet and awesome. And so we, we, I round the corner, I'm like, I've made it. And then all of a sudden, you hear, Daddy. And the first time you pretend like you didn't hear it. <laughs> then you hear again, Daddy. Yes, girls? I'm thirsty. I'll get you a drink, don't worry, I'll get you a drink. 
But who knew, who knew that those three words, I am thirsty, could pack such meaning? If you got your Bibles, John chapter 19. John's chapter 19, I promise that will make sense in just a second. John chapter 19. You know, if you haven't been with us, we're in this series where we're looking at Jesus, this one moment in Jesus' life. And I love where this series is timed in our calendar because we're building up to Resurrection Sunday. We're building to Easter and we're zooming at the cross, Good Friday before Resurrection Sunday. And in this series, final words, we're looking at the seven statements that Jesus makes on the cross, significant statements. We've looked at four already. This morning, we're going to dig into the fifth one, and we find it in John chapter 19. It says this, later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said those three words, I am thirsty. Now, before we dive into what those words mean, I think in the passage, it kind of says some unique things. It says, later knowing that everything had been finished. Well, what is finished? Now, we don't know the full picture, only God does, but we get an indication from his previous statement. We looked at it last week. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, we read that the backdrop of the, the crucifixion changes where darkness presses in over the land, and Jesus, in that statement, carries the weight of our sin and, and our rebellion to God. And not only does he wear our sin, but he experiences the full wrath of God on Jesus instead of us. And so maybe the, the penalty and the payment of sin is finished, and then Jesus says these words, I'm thirsty. And honestly, when you read them, they almost feel out of place. It's like, okay, Jesus, this feels really awkward. Like, you just get done with this powerful statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And now you give us a Sprite commercial, obey your thirst. Like, seriously? <laughs> Does this make any sense? How can these words really hold that much meaning? Is it just as simple as Jesus was a human who was thirsty and he expressed that? Why are these words so important? Well, I think you actually have to see what happens next to get the full picture of these words. It says this, a jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put, it in, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Now, poor Jesus, right? He's suffering on a cross. He says he's thirsty. He needs a drink. And what do they do? They give him vinegar. Maybe one of the worst things to drink, to, to get to drink when you are thirsty. But during this event and what happens here in this moment where Jesus says, I'm thirsty, and he's given vinegar, in this moment, we see some really powerful things that we would often miss in Scripture. Right, the first thing that we see is this statement or event fulfills a prophecy and reveals who Jesus is. Now, you might be like, where, how, how does this all take place? Well, let's break it down. The, the prophecy that is fulfilled, we find in, in Psalms chapter 22 and Psalms chapter 69. Before Jesus ever went to the cross, it was predicted that he would be thirsty. Psalms 22, it says, my mouth is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth, and you lay me in the dust of death. 
And so here we see that Jesus would feel this, this thing that we often feel where our mouth is dry. It says his mouth is dry like a potsherd. What the heck is a potsherd? It's just simply a very dry clay pot. And so it, we see predicted from before Jesus ever came to the cross that he would express this. And not only that, but what he would be given to drink. Psalm 69, it says this, they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. And what's so fascinating to me is here Jesus is suffering. I mean, he's dying. And yet you see the intentionality and the, the attention to detail from our God. That he doesn't miss a beat. He knows every detail and every word and every prophecy that needs to be fulfilled. And one thing I want you to understand about the God that we serve, the God that we worship, is he pays attention to details. The details in your life that you might feel are insignificant are insignificant to God. In fact, think about the pages of the Bible. You know, the Bible says that God has numbered every hair on your head. Think about how, how crazy that is. Now, for some of you, that's really not that hard. But for others of you, that's a pretty steep equation. But honestly, like of all the things that God has to worry about, all the things going on in our universe, in our world, all the things he has to keep and hold together, and yet he still knows how many hairs you have on your head. The Bible says in the scriptures that, that on the beach, God knows every grain of sand. Now, come on, sand sounds pretty good right now. A little sunshine, you know, you dig your hand. How crazy is it to think that God cares even about those small details. And we see this all throughout the pages of scripture. And, and at the cross, Jesus knows what to say, when to say it, to fulfill the prophecies that have been predicted about him long ago. Because our God is a God of detail. The second thing we see in this statement and event is Jesus reveals who he is to us in a unique way. You see, when they go to give Jesus a drink, they use the stalk of a hyssop plant. Now, it would be easy for us to miss this little thing, but the hyssop branch is actually pretty important. To understand the hyssop branch, you gotta go back to the Old Testament. You see, in Exodus, the book of Exodus, the nation of Israel is in bondage. They're slaves to the Egyptian empire, and God brings Moses, the deliverer, and he has this interaction with Pharaoh, right? Nine times, Moses goes to Pharaoh, let God's people go, no. So God brings nine, miracle, nine miracles, nine plagues to, to Pharaoh. He sees the miracles of God, but yet his heart is still hardened. And then Moses says to Pharaoh, on the 10th plague, it's gonna be the worst. Because God's spirit is going to come through Egypt and he's going to kill every firstborn. But Moses goes to the Israelites and look what he tells them. Exodus chapter 12, he says, take a bunch of, there it is, hyssop. Dip it into, blood, into the blood and in the basin and put some of the blood on top and on both sides of the door frames. None of you shall go out of the door until you're, of your house until morning. And so the Israelites were told when the Spirit of God would go through, pass through the nation of Egypt and kill every firstborn, you take that hyssop branch, you dip it in the blood of a lamb, and you paint it on your doorframe. And when the Spirit of God comes and sees the markings of the blood, it will pass over your family. And can I tell you the same is true for you today? 
That when you are marked by the blood of Jesus through his cross and his resurrection, when you are covered figuratively and spiritually in the blood of Jesus, when you accept him as your forgiver and your leader, you let him come into your life, you are marked by his blood. And when God goes to pour out his wrath on evil and he sees you marked by Jesus, he passes over you because Jesus is the Passover lamb. And we should be thankful for that because because of that, we don't have to receive the wrath of God. It passes over us. Praise Jesus. This is why John, John the Baptist, he came before Jesus, paved the way for Jesus. When he saw Jesus, look what he says. It says, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, oh, look, the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb of God. What does he do? He takes away my sins and your sins, the sins of the world. Because we see in the small details of scripture that is revealing who Jesus is, that he is our Passover Lamb and he can do amazing things in our lives. The second thing we see in this statement, I am thirsty, is this statement declares the humanity of Jesus. You know, one thing that we often forget about when we, when we study Jesus, when we read about Jesus, is that Jesus is this unique human. He's fully God and yet still fully man. He's unique to all of us. And, and, and we would be lying to pretend we knew exactly what that meant and how that worked and panned out in Jesus' life. But Jesus being one of us makes a relatable savior because when you think about God, right? God can sometimes, I don't know about you, but maybe for me, he feels a little bit distant because God is all powerful, he's all knowing, he, he watches over the entire galaxy, he's holy and perfect and flawless and you think about God and how he's described and then you look at your life and you're like, I'm nothing and I'm a sinner and, and it feels like there's this huge gap between you and God. But Jesus closes that gap because he was one of us. He was fully man. And so what you go through in life, Jesus has experienced. What you feel in life, Jesus has experienced. He's a relatable God. And the Bible gives us indication of God being, Jesus being fully God and fully human. In Philippians, look what it says. It says, Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in an appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so Jesus says, I'm thirsty. What he's declaring to us is that he feels and knows what it means to be human. I would assume all of us knows what it means to be thirsty, right? To long for a drink. But if you read the gospels, I'd encourage you to do that at some point. Read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and study Jesus's life. What you will see through the pages of the gospel is the humanity of Jesus. Let me show you a couple parts. Right, one story in Jesus' life where his friend Lazarus gets sick. And Jesus waits a couple days to go see him, and when he gets to him, Lazarus is dead. A good, close friend dies, and how does Jesus respond? It's the shortest verse in all the Bible. It says in John chapter 11, Jesus wept. Can I give you a different translation? It's my translation. Jesus bawled like a baby. 
And can I tell you, when I see this in scripture, it's easy to to read through that, but it's so relatable to me and to you because I bet you every single one of us has done that. Where we've experienced the loss of a family member, the loss of a close friend, the loss that hurt us so much that the pain was so real that all we could do was just fall in grief and anguish and bawl like a baby. And we see that in our Savior. So the next time you mourn, know that Jesus has been there and done that. You know what you also see in Jesus? Him getting physically tired. Think about that, right? God getting tired as a human, right? John 4, it says, Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well because it was about noon. Now, unfortunately for Jesus, He didn't have vehicles to take him where he wanted to go. He had to walk with his disciples. And you see Jesus as a human experiencing this idea of being tired, physically exhausted. I don't know about you, but I can relate to that because I feel physically exhausted all the time, spiritually, mentally. I blame Baylor most of the time right now. You also see in Jesus as a human a little bit of sarcasm and a little bit of anger. Now, let me just remind you, his sarcasm and his anger were holy. Usually ours aren't. Matthew 23, as he speaks to the religious leaders, look what he says. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Now picture this in your head. I love this moment in Jesus' life. He says, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Like, come on, Jesus. Okay, yeah, let's, I like it, right? A little bit of sarcasm, a little like, got you, one for Jesus, zero for the religious leaders. And you see this holy anger and, and sarcasm towards people who were being hypocritical. Do you know Jesus also had family dysfunction? Right? That, if anything makes Jesus relatable to us, it's the fact that we all got family dysfunction and most of us are a part of that dysfunction. Did you know that when Jesus told his family who he was, they didn't believe him at first? Right? John chapter seven, it says, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. It took a while for them to, to believe Jesus was the son of God. Mark three, at one point, Jesus's family thought he was out of his mind. It says, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him for they said he was crazy. He was out of his mind. So there's dysfunction in Jesus's family because he's a human and he's experienced what we have experienced. But have you ever wondered why, why did Jesus have to be human? Why couldn't he be all God or why couldn't he just be a human? Why did we have to have this, this, this fully God and fully man? Well, the truth is, is the only person who can redeem humanity had to be perfect, but also had to be human. And Jesus was the only option. Because if you go back to the Old Testament, what they would do for sins is they would sacrifice an animal. But that wasn't taking away their sins, it was just reminding them of their sins. Hebrews chapter 10, it says this, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away the sins, take away sins. And so Jesus had to be fully God. He had to be perfect and flawless to take on our punishment, but he had to be human. And so when Jesus says, I am thirsty, he declares to you and I that he is a relatable savior. 
The humanity of Jesus creates this relatable savior that you and I don't have to feel distant from, but we can understand and get what he went through because we go through it. The Bible paints this beautifully in Hebrews chapter four. It says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable, Jesus is our high priest, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And so Jesus gets our physical limitations. He gets the limitations of what it means to be human. Think about the limitations physically that we have as humans. Right, every single one of us, at some point we have to eat food or our body will decay and die. That was true for Jesus. He didn't get to just walk around and do all the miracles and never stop and have a meal. His body, his physical human body needed substance. He got tired and he needed sleep. Jesus didn't live much differently than we did other than the part of sin. We sin, he didn't. And so Jesus had to take a break and and, and refuel his body through sleep and and taking breaks. Jesus probably dealt, we don't see any indication of this in the scripture, but I'm making an assumption here. Jesus probably dealt with the average cold. You know, the cough, the allergies, these were probably things that Jesus had to wrestle through. Jesus could only be in one place at one time, even though all of the world needed him. He was a human. He couldn't jump from this space to other spaces. He could, but he didn't. Jesus only had 24 hours in a day. He couldn't extend time because he was a human. And so he had to live within the bounds of humanity. And so when you, when you read this passage and you see these final words of Jesus, when you come across this, this statement, I'm thirsty, there's a lot there. There's the fact that our God is detailed and is fulfilling predictions of his life before he ever arrived on the scene. There's there's this, this declaration of who he is and what he can do in our lives. And there's this relatable savior that we can get. And so when you read these words, here's what I want you to understand for your life today. The first one, you have to understand that when you suffer or that when we suffer, we are not alone. Now that's good news today because every single one of us in life, at some point or another, we're going to suffer. Right? And maybe that, that's you right now. Maybe as you listen today, you are going through a difficult time in your life where you are suffering because of a tragedy, because of something that happened to you, a loss of a job, a divorce, or whatever it is, and you're dealing with this suffering in your life. And can I tell you today, one of the greatest tools the enemy uses is when you suffer, he wants to isolate you. He wants, you to, he wants to tell you that you're the only one dealing with that. And the truth is, is no matter if anybody from human, a human perspective gets it, your savior does. Because when you suffer, you are never alone. You ever hear the expression, misery loves company? And there's two truths in that, this statement that um, I think we often miss. The first one is the obvious. It's kind of the sick and twisted part of this, right? Where when you are miserable, you want somebody else to be miserable so you feel better about being miserable. If you think about that long enough, it's pretty sad. But it's true, right? You're like, oh, you're suffering? Good, I feel better about my suffering. Oh, wow, thank you for that. But the other side of that is when you do suffer, someone's presence is a lot. When you suffer and you realize you're not all by yourself, it changes the dynamic for your suffering. 
And so for those of you who are suffering today, I just want you to know that no one else might get it. Jesus does. And he will walk with you through that suffering. And not only will he walk through it with you, he gives you an example of how to suffer well. He reminds you that in your suffering, it's never wasted. That there is purpose for the pain. The story of Jesus is, is the truth because in his suffering, guess what? He produced salvation for us. And so God uses suffering to redeem you, to mold you, to craft you, to make you look more like him. And so we can suffer well because we don't suffer alone. The second thing I want you to see in this story is the fact that God came to us. He didn't expect us to come to him. Don't miss this small detail in the humanity of Jesus. Because when we understand that Jesus is a human, here's what it means. That on Christmas, we celebrate it every year. On Christmas, we celebrate the fact that God left heaven and came to a messy earth. And don't, don't miss this up, right? God didn't leave heaven because he wanted a vacation on earth. No, God wasn't tired of the amazingness of heaven and the perfectness of heaven and just felt like, hey, I'd love some time in a messy, ugly world. No, God left heaven and came to earth to save you and to save me. He pursued you, and in that coming, you see a love of God that will chase you down, that will pursue you, that will never stop loving you. Because if you study any other religion other than Christianity, and you look at those low, lowercase g gods, here's what they say to everybody who worships them. What can you bring to me? What can you sacrifice to me? The God of the universe, the one true God says, you don't have to come to me, because I'll pave a way for you to get to me by giving up my one and only son. And we see this love that pursues and chases you down. Because God didn't say you broke it, you fix it. God didn't say you're a sinner, figure out a way to get to me. He said, no, I will come to you and I will pay the penalty for you so that you could be with me. Third and final thing, and I think maybe this is the most important thing. These words, I am thirsty. You see, we have to recognize that Jesus thirsted so we wouldn't have to thirst again. You know, maybe there's something more to these words, I am thirsty, than what we see. Because maybe Jesus as a human is declaring something that everyone actually feels. That every single human being in life has a thirst that we long to be quenched. Right, we see it in all of humanity. We see it in our lives and in, every, uh, in our culture's lives. Right? There is something that is soul deep inside all of us, a thirst, a void that needs to be filled, a thirst that needs to be quenched. And what do we spend the majority of our lives doing? Chasing after, filling that void, chasing after, quenching that thirst. And we do it through all the things the world has to offer. We try it with relationships. We try it with good things, money and material things. We try it in bad things like substances and drugs and alcohol. And we search and we search because there is a thirst in all of us that we want to be quenched. But the problem is, is everything in this world that we've tried leaves us unsatisfied. At the depths of our soul, Nothing seems to quench that thirst that we all have. And in the Bible, Jesus encountered a woman just like me and you. And the way she tried to fill that void, the way she tried to quench that thirst was through relationships. 
She bought the lie that the next guy in her life would be the guy who would bring her life satisfaction, who would quench that thirst that she has, and it never panned out. She's much like us because probably many of you are trying to fill that void, quench that thirst with things of the world, and you just keep going and going, and it longs, you just long for more. But look what Jesus says to this woman, and look what he says to you. He says, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Because the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see, these words, I am thirsty, are true for you, and they're true for me. We all have a thirst that needs to be quenched, but can only be quenched by the Savior who hung on that cross and three days later rose again. So let's pray together. Father, we pray that as we long, as our souls cry out to fill that void, God, that we would stop searching for things that will never satisfy. That we would just stop assuming that more money will give us purpose and satisfaction, that another relationship would fill that void, that, 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 that drug or that drink will bring meaning to our life. God, today, I pray that your people would push aside all the nonsense and that our souls would be connected to you because right there is where we find water that we will never thirst again. So I pray that we would live that and hold fast to that in Jesus' name. Amen.